Today we continue in Philippians. We've come to chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Well, today we come to one of those passages that I feel like we're uh, entering holy ground. And we probably should all take our shoes off, but I'm afraid that would cause a toxic hazard somehow, would be a health danger, so we won't make you do that. But I will say this is a passage that, as some have said, if they only had one passage in all the Bible, this is the one they would choose. And for me personally, I taught through this a few years back, and it became part of my daily prayer. Every morning I pray through this passage as a reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and what he's called us to. In fact, I would have to say that there's no passage in the Bible that has so shaped my thinking or my life as this one in recent years. So I challenge you to really hear with an open heart and even to memorize this passage and think it through and pray it through daily. I want to begin with a question this morning. How would you define success? What does a successful life look like? For many in our culture, it's having a nice house, having two or three cars, having enough wealth that you can relax in your future, in retirement, having a meaningful career that really means something, you you value it. For many of the millennial generation, we look to, and all of us really, we look to affirmation of our peers. We, We want to know that we're accepted and we're part of a community where we feel loved and cared for. Many would say a successful life is one in which you're true to yourself. You are authentic. You don't compromise who you are, but you really live out who you are. Some would say that a successful life is one in which you're a good steward of our earth here. We could go on and on. There's many ways you could define the successful life that the world tells us. Uh, Two weeks ago, I was at a wedding with Jeannie and I, with some of her relatives, and we were standing in the parking lot after the wedding, and one of our relatives, a nephew, said, watch this. He punched a couple buttons on his cell phone, and his car backed out of the parking spot and drove over right to where he was, right in front of him. It was a Tesla. It drives itself. He commutes to work, and he drives the Tesla, only it really drives itself. He has a beautiful house, 
in San Francisco. In many ways, you'd look at his life and say, wow, he is successful. Of course, you begin to look a little deeper and you begin to see that, well, actually, though, he, uh, he commutes three hours a day in that Tesla. He has three small children, but doesn't get to spend much time with them at all. His life is not quite so beautiful as it might look from the outside. Worldly success, what it actually offers you is what I would call a hill-shaped life. One in which you strive and you grasp and you, you try to make it and it's this upward mobility, but you always eventually crest. And there's always a downside. And at the bottom, you end up ultimately with nothing. That's, I believe, that the Scripture suggests and Jesus suggests is all that the world can ultimately offer you is a hill-shaped life where, in the end, you lose it all. But Jesus shows us that the true successful life is very different. It doesn't come in upward mobility. It comes in downward mobility, not in grasping for all we can get, but in laying down our lives for others and for the kingdom of God. And in the end, when we follow the path of Jesus, what we end up with is true success, true glory, what we longed for all along, but tried to get it in the wrong way. Our passage today shows us the surprising path to true success, true glory. So let's pray as we begin. Lord, today we look at an amazing picture of who you are, Lord Jesus, and the path that you walked to bring life to us and how ultimately you were exalted by living that kind of life. Lord, we so easily fall into a worldly view of success. I pray, Lord, you'd reshape our thinking today and give us a fresh vision of who you are, that we might walk the path that you walked to experience real life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Passage begins as uh, was just read in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Literally, the passage says, think this way about yourselves or among yourselves as Jesus thought. Think this way about yourselves as Jesus thought. Have the same view of life he did. Understand success in the same way that Jesus does, not as the world does. And let me say, one of the most important things about this verse is to remember that Jesus calls us to, yes, a downward mobility, but he does not call us to any path that he has not walked first. And in fact, he walks it with us now in his life in us. This is our calling, to live our lives like Jesus did, to see him for who he really is and to walk in that same way with the same view of what success really is. And so now Paul focuses our attention on what that path is that Jesus walked, this downward path. Four steps I want to highlight in this downward path. The first is don't grasp. 
Don't grasp. Verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto, to be plundered. That word for grasp has the idea of grabbing something, taking it by force, plundering something that perhaps was not yours rightfully. My daughter and her husband and their 11-month-old, he'll be one next week, is living with us at the moment. And we were watching my grandson, and he was uh, just today talking about what he, saying what he really wanted. I want this, I want that. And, and uh, grabbing for one thing, we offered him another. And as we thought about that, I realized, you know, children don't need to be taught grasping. Right? It's innate in human nature for every one of us to take from another, to see a child. We've seen it all. If you've been around children, right? They see what another child's playing with and they just grab it. And they take it for themselves. That's this idea of grasping. We maybe are a little more sophisticated about it, but we all do the same. It began with Adam and Eve in the garden when... God blessed them richly and set them in the garden and Satan convinced them that God was holding out on them and they better grab while they could. So they could have the knowledge of good and evil like God. And so they took and ate of the fruit. Tower of Babel, mankind getting together, trying to build their way to God to become God-like and on and on. Every human being that's been born except Jesus himself in all of history since then has struggled with this grasping, trying to grab our own way to glory, to success somehow, whether it's through money or power or sex or status or being liked or whatever. We are all graspers by nature. Robert Raines writes a poem about James and John who tried to grasp being at Jesus's right hand. They asked him for that. And this is what the poet writes. I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people, ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank checks for whatever I want. I am like James and John. But it says Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, chose not to grasp. That word form Existing in the form of God is an interesting word. It's the Greek word morphe. It means essentially the outer expression of an inner reality. In other words, Jesus was fully God. And if you looked at him in his pre-incarnate state, what you would see is all the fullness of Godness, the glory of who God was. All you'd see that in Jesus. He existed in the form of God, but he chose not to grasp that and hold on to that expression of Godness. He chose to let that go. He didn't consider that something to hold on to. His mindset, his way of thinking is, I don't need to grasp that for myself. 
This was a huge step for Jesus. We see how he was tempted in the temptation shortly after he began his ministry, after he was baptized. It says he went into the desert for 40 days and was tempted by Satan. And the three temptations were given of Satan. Do you recall them? That essentially what Satan was saying is, Jesus, you can grasp for glory now. You can grasp for what God wants you to have without going to the cross, without having to step down. And I think that was a legitimate temptation for Jesus. But he chose not to grasp. He chose not to take what he could for himself. He knew that the true path to life was through downward mobility. And he calls us to do the same, to not grasp in life, to see that giving up my rights... Letting go, not trying to grasp to get what I think I need out of life is really the best way to go. But you may say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not that way. I'm not a grasper. <laughs> really. When you do something good and someone else gets the credit, how do you respond? <laughs> Wait a minute, that's not fair. I did it. Look at me. <laughs> Or when you're mistreated, when someone treats you unfairly, do you fight for your rights? Do you grasp to get what you think you deserve? When someone cuts in front of you in line or takes your seat on the plane or, 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 <laughs> do you fight for your rights? Or maybe you don't fight for your rights outwardly, but inwardly, do you stew in anger and think of all the things you'd like to do to get back to them if you had a chance? You see, inwardly in our hearts, we are all graspers thinking, I need to protect myself. I need to take for myself. But Jesus chose to let go of his rights, not grasp for what was rightfully his, all the glory of God. He let it go. And yet all that we grasp for, most of it, we don't, it's not rightfully ours at all. But we still try to get it. We just demand it for ourselves. And so... Step one to true success, true glory, is to not grasp, to let go of that. Secondly, self-emptying, to empty ourselves. Verse 7, but he emptied himself, Jesus did, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. What does this mean, this emptying self, this self-emptying? Jesus let me just say, was still fully God and fully man. To empty himself didn't mean that he emptied himself as all of all that he was as God. No, he was still fully God and fully man. So what did he empty himself of? I think the passage tells us when it says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. To empty himself was to let go of his position as Lord, one with all authority to take the lowest place. And in Roman culture, to be a slave or a bondservant meant you had no rights. You couldn't vote. You couldn't stand up in a court of law. You had no rights at all. You were owned. And so for Jesus to take that position as a human being meant he gave up his rights. He gave up all for us. I think... It was a huge step down for the God of the universe to not only become human, which was 
amazing step, but to become a slave of others. One of the most beautiful pictures of this is the up in the um, upper room where Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And it's a beautiful picture. It's a parable of Jesus' whole life where he gets up from the table and removes his clothing, empties himself, so to speak, and takes the lowest place and washes the feet of the, the disciples. And they are astounded. They're amazed that Jesus would take that low place. But actually, that's how he lived his whole life. He saw his life as one to give away for the sake of others. And it says that when he emptied himself, he took the form of a bondservant. That's the same word, morphe. So follow me, because I think this is really significant and important. Jesus existed in the form of God in all his glory. The member, morphe, is the outer expression of an inner reality. It says when he emptied himself, he took the form of a bondservant. That meant it was still an inner expre- outer expression of an inner reality. In other words, when Jesus became a bondservant, he was simply expressing another aspect of who God really is. He wasn't taking on something that God isn't. In fact, he was just expressing another aspect of God's incredible nature, his love, his mercy, his servant heart. You see, that's a beautiful part of God that we forget sometimes. So when Jesus acted as a slave of others, he was expressing the very nature of God. And this encourages us and reminds us that we are never more like God and never more expressing his character than when we are serving others, giving our life away, setting aside our own interests, not grasping, but emptying ourselves of our own position for the sake of others, to take a lower position for the sake of others. When we think about others first and what would bless them and set aside our own wants, we're expressing the very nature of God to one another. I know for myself, I struggle with this because I, like you, have a grasping nature. When I come in sometimes and I'm tired, it's been a long day, it's been draining, and I know Jeannie's going to be busy and she's going to have probably three or four grandkids at her feet and there's a lot of needs there, and yet I want to come in and I simply want to get my feet up and relax. And at that point, I have a choice. Will I grasp for what I think I need, or will I let it go and be willing to take on the form of a bondservant to express that part of God's life through me? It's a choice that each of us has to make hundreds of times a day, I think, little choices we make to trust God with our needs and to give our lives away, to follow in the steps of Jesus. Step one, don't grasp. Let that go. Step two, to empty yourself. Step three, to humble yourself. Self-humbling. Verse eight, being found in appearance as a man. Jesus being the one true man, showing us what humanity is meant to be like and how we're to live it out. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So how did Jesus humble himself? We've all 
experience humbling, right? Circumstances humbling us or somebody humiliating us or whatever. We've been humbled by others, but what does it mean to humble yourself? Jesus humbled himself. How did Jesus do it? Well, he acted obediently, it says, despite his desire to not go through with the cross. We see this most clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that incredible scene where Jesus is in the garden and he's alone and he's wrestling with God in prayer. And as he wrestles with God, his, he, he prays, Lord, if possible, let this cup be taken from me. I don't want to go through this. Life's tough. But not my will, but yours be done. I think that's what it means to humble yourself. To lay your will at God's feet and say, not my will, but yours be done. Yeah, I want this. Yeah, I want that. Yeah, I don't want to go through this difficulty. But Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And when he did that, he redeemed the entire world. He took our sin on himself. Do you see how this is the opposite of grasping? Grasping is, I need my will to be done. This is another step down in downward mobility. I don't care what happens to me as long as I'm doing your will, Father. Jesus let go of his will, and we're called to do the same. So Jesus thought in this way, and that's why Paul says, think in the same way of Jesus, that this is true success. Downward mobility, to not grasp, to empty yourself of your own rights, to empty yourself of your own position, and to empty yourself of your own will to follow him, to do what's right. Paul says, think the same thing as Jesus did. Now, if the path ended there, that would seem pretty bleak, wouldn't it? (laughs) Wow, thanks, Lord. That sounds not fun. But it doesn't end there. There's another step, one that God does. Because this is the surprising path to glory. We were created to become glorious expressions of God himself. And so step four is what God does then if we're willing to step down in this downward mobility is he exalts us. Verse 9 through 11, because as we see what he did for Jesus, for this reason, because he did this, because he took the downward path, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And everybody else, by the way, in case there's anybody not included. (laughs) And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Because Jesus chose the downward path, the Father has exalted him to this place where he's bestowed on him the name above every name. What is that name? It's Yahweh. It's the covenant God. It's the translation in the New Testament is Lord. Jesus is Lord with all authority. Because he took this downward path and emptied himself and humbled himself, he is Lord. But not only that, is he Lord now, but ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. They will admit that he is Yahweh no matter who they are. Kent Hughes, the commentator, says this, Soon every tongue of every rational being in all creation will confess that Jesus, 
Messiah is Yahweh. Every believing heart will cry out at the top of its lungs in voice and song, and we with the angels will do it over and over for all eternity. Every unbelieving heart will confess it too, in dismal submission and despair. Even Satan will do it. His knee and his tongue will not be excluded. Every fallen spirit will do it. Legion upon legion will do it. Caiaphas will confess that Jesus Messiah is Yahweh. Herod will do it. Pilate will do it. Nero will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hitler will do it. Stalin will do it. Every soul from every age will confess that Jesus Messiah is Yahweh. Amen. Some will do this willingly because they have chosen to bow the knee on earth and take the downward path. And some will do it as conquered enemies of his who spent their lives grasping for God-likeness and ending up with nothing. And God will choose to exalt us if we choose to live life his way and follow this surprising path to glory. 1 Peter 5, 6 summarizes this, right? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will exalt you. I'm not sure what that will all look like, but I know it's going to be awesome. And we will all shine like stars in the universe, reflecting his glory in a beautiful way, the glory that we all tried to get on our own and could never reach, but that he gives as a gift. When we give it all up, I appreciate the way Henry Nouwen describes this path as he says, Jesus has a completely different vision of maturity than the world. The way of the Christian is not the way of upward mobility in which our world has invested so much, but the way of downward mobility ending on the cross. This might sound morbid and masochistic, but for those who have heard the voice of the first love and said yes to it, The downward-moving way of Jesus is the way to the joy and the peace of God, a joy and peace that is not of this world. I want to close by showing you an illustration. You see, there's two ways to live, two lives. You can live the self-life as a grasper, or you can live in which you follow the downward mobility. The grasping life is a hill-shaped life where you strive and strive, but you end up on the downside and end up with nothing. Or you can choose to live the U-shaped life where you go down and you don't grasp and you empty yourself and you humble yourself like Jesus did, and then God exalts you in the end. When you live the U-shaped life, you're giving your life away. You let go of your rights, your position, your will, and trust God to exalt you at the proper time. And I want you to notice a hill-shaped life. When God tries to pour out his blessings on you, what happens? It all runs out. It runs off. And you end up with nothing. But a U-shaped life is like a cup where God can pour in his life to you and then it can overflow to be a blessing to others. Which kind of life is yours? Those who know you 
What kind of life do they see in you? What would they say you were living? What is your morphe, your outer expression of the inner reality? Is it a hill-shaped life or a U-shaped life? I would just like now to take a couple of moments of silent prayer and for you to consider your life before God and what it is and has been and what God is calling you to in light of our passage today. Just take a couple of minutes in prayer and then I'll close. Lord, this morning, we confess that there's a huge part of us that we are graspers. We want what we want when we want it. (laughs) And we try to get it. Instead of trusting you to take care of us and give us the life that you want to pour into us. So, Lord, thank you for this passage. May it begin to reshape the way we look at our lives and what we're striving for. And may we follow in your footsteps, Lord Jesus, to be people who follow downward mobility, stepping down and waiting for you to lift us up in your way and in your timing. May we shine as lights for you because we are living the life that you showed us is the way to true glory and true success. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.